Let's get into Daniel chapter 9. Man, Jeremy, thanks for wherever you are. Thank you for, uh, for just reading that for us. And this is something that we are committed to as a church, is reading God's Word. We value God's Word. There are parts of God's Word that are easy to understand, and there are parts of God's Word that are not easy to understand. And the back half of Daniel is pretty perplexing at times. So if that stuff is going over your head, welcome to the club, because I am there with you for sure. Now, uh, you, uh, you, we just together read Daniel chapter 9. We're, we're, we're starting to comprehend this, these 27 verses. What uh, did you identify a central theme? What did Daniel spend the majority of his time doing in Daniel chapter 9? Just say it if you know it. Confession? Okay. Prayer? That's it. Both those answers are it, for sure. Listen to uh, this quote from Sinclair Ferguson in reference to the last four verses of Daniel chapter 9, all the confusing stuff, the 70 weeks and the abomination and the temple and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, he says this, Sinclair Ferguson writes, this section itself is relatively brief. It's almost obscure. No interpretation of the book of Daniel should either begin or end with this section. Number two, he says the New Testament nowhere clearly refers to the contents of this prophecy. We don't find it in our New Testaments. Even the reference to the abomination of desolation in Mark 13, 14 is from Daniel 11 and Daniel 12 and not strictly from Daniel chapter 9. He writes, if the 70 weeks of this prophecy were fundamental to a biblical theology, as for example Isaiah 53 is, there would undoubtedly be clearer exposition of the passage in the apostolic writings. That is our New Testaments, the writings of the apostles. Number three, he says, to look immediately for an explanation of the 70 weeks of verse 24 is to ignore the significance of the rest of this chapter. It is unfortunate in this context that controversy over the, interpre the interpretation of these verses leads some commentators to devote more space to the last four verses than they do to the rest of the chapter. Does that mean that the last four verses are unimportant? Not at all. Not even close. Absolutely they are important, but I, I, I don't see them as central to this chapter. And our focus today on, in Daniel is going to be on the front half of this prayer, this confession of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. Now, as a preacher, I work with a budget, and the budget that I work with is time. And as hearers, you work with a budget too. And the budget that you're working with is time and our attention spans. And if we spend our attention, if we spend our budget this morning on Daniel's approach to Yahweh, how he approaches God, we will, uh, this will be time well used for us, for sure. So that's where I want to just lodge the majority of our time this morning. This prayer from Daniel in chapter 9 is the fifth longest prayer in the entire Bible. Daniel uses about 550 words to express this prayer. It's substantial in the Old Testament writings. And the fact that Daniel chooses to write this prayer down means that Daniel wanted to instruct his original audience. He wanted, he wanted them to know something. He wanted to convey something. He wanted to pass something on to them. And now today, though we're not that original audience, we are his audience as we're reading his writings 2,600 years later, and we have something to learn. So what can we learn? That's what I want to just uh, lay before you today. First, 
I I want to just open up the context of Daniel chapter 9. He says, in the first year of Darius, or Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians. Um, This means that this is the, he's writing in the very first year of regime change. Babylon has been in control of his people and in control, uh, but they have just fallen. And they've just fallen to the Persians. Babylon would come in and uh, occupy Israel and take away the exiles back to Babylon about 500 miles away in current day Iraq. They would conquer Jerusalem, Babylon did, in about 605 B.C., And then Babylon would fall to the Persians in 538 B.C. And what this means, if you do the math, is that it means that Daniel and company, they have been in exile, um, wards, if you will, of the state of captives of Babylon for about 67 years. And Daniel has seen all of it. Daniel has seen every bit of it, which means that this guy is in his 80s, likely. He's an old man. And Daniel, in verse 1, he tells us that he's actually been reading, uh, actually in verse 2, he tells us that he has been reading the prophet Jeremiah's scrolls. And what he's reading from this prophet Jeremiah who wrote before Jerusalem had fallen, what he reads is that there are going to be 70 years of Babylonian captivity. And Daniel is starting to recognize as he's reading Jeremiah He's recognizing that this 70 years is coming to a close, that something is about to happen. And this is what he reads in Jeremiah's scroll, likely in either chapter 25, but I'm going to read from chapter 29 where they address it as well, Jeremiah does. And Jeremiah speaks from the Lord as a prophet of God, and he says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. This is God speaking here. I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. The place that he's speaking of is Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, plans to give you a future and a hope. Do you recognize that verse? Some of you have that hanging up in your house, right? You got it on t-shirts or your cute little coffee cups. Like we, we, we love this verse. But we have to remember the context of that verse. God is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah to the people of Israel before Babylon has come in and drawn them out into incredible suffering and into exile. And God beforehand is saying, hey, you've disregarded me for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And judgment is going to be on your head because of that. But I will not leave you and I will not forsake you, the people of Israel. My Messiah will come through you. I will deliver on my prop." on my promises. So if we pick up right after that verse, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, plans to give you a future and a hope. Verse 12, then you will call upon me and you will come and you will pray to me and I will hear you and you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. That sounds familiar too. It's in our New Testaments. These are the words of Jesus as well. He writes, 
God says through Jeremiah, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes, and I will gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from or to the place from which I sent you into exile. He's saying, I'm going to gather you back into Jerusalem, into the holy city. Now, if this is what Daniel is reading in chapter 2 of Daniel 9, or verse 2 of Daniel 9, if Daniel and Israel here are on the verge of returning to Jerusalem, then I started to ask this question. Why is Daniel about to extensively confess the sins of his people? Shouldn't he be sort of on the verge here of celebration? Like this is a momentous time. They're about to be freed from captivity to be able to go back to their land. What's Daniel doing? Daniel is living in real time. He's living in real time. He is rehearsing God's promises in Daniel chapter 9. And he's doing that while he's still, in real time, he's still in exile. So Daniel turns to Yahweh with all of his needs. And Daniel turns to Yahweh in this moment with all of his hope in God's promises. This is actually a really good definition of prayer for us. Prayer is turning to God with all of our needs and turning to God with our hope in his promises that God will act, that God will come through on what he has said over time that he will do. Now here are a couple of things. I just, I have a few points out of Daniel chapter nine that I wanna lay before you. Here's some things that we have to learn from Daniel's praying from the way that he prays here. Verse four, no matter what you need, Or no matter what you hope for, begin by loving God. No matter what it is that your need is, that our need is, no matter what it is that we hope for, begin, we can begin by loving God. In verse 4, he says, I prayed to the Lord my God and I made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. That is a Hebrew word. It's one Hebrew word. It's the word has said. We need two words in English to describe it, but this is all over. Our, our Old Testaments are littered with this word, has said, steadfast love. This is God's character, and this is his nature. He keeps covenant with his people. Even when his people break it, he stays true. He stays faithful because of his steadfast love, his has said, and he does that with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. So what Daniel is doing in verse 4 here is he's He's giving God deep love and he's giving God, Daniel is giving God back deep love and respect. He's, in, in the early words of this prayer, he is, he's adoring God. And so in the context of our spirituality, in the context of what it means for us in 2023 as followers of God, as followers of Jesus Christ, to adore God is to name his worth. It's to ascribe him worth. Worth is actually the root of our word worship. When we are worshiping God or something else, we are ascribing it worth. Worth-ship. To adore God is to worship him. And, and Daniel's very, his opening line here in verse 4 names this loyalty of God. This has said the, the total steadfast love and faithfulness of God. And, and when we come to God praying, when we come to God as his people, we often will come to God with some form of adoration because adoration focuses our attention on who it is that we're speaking to. 
who it is that we're talking to, who it is that we're hoping in. And to be sure, we have requests, and to be sure in Daniel 9, he has requests too, but his requests are brought with a deep awareness of who it is that he's talking to, who it is that he's addressing. I've learned this principle myself over time. It's taken me quite a while, but a main way that I, that I, I actually pray is I pray through writing. Uh, for me, uh, writing, uh, it, it slows my brain down and it helps to focus me. It gives me, a, it slows time down and I'm able to focus my mind. And if you were to read my prayers, the things that I write, nine times out of ten, uh, what you would see is that the very first word of every new prayer would be this title, Father. It's just what you'll see right out of the gates. Uh, I'm trying to pray in the way that Jesus taught me to pray, taught us to pray in our New Testaments. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So I'll write this word, Father. And, and over time, by thoughtfully beginning with this word, my prayers, Father, I've come to a pretty deep awareness that God is my Father through this repetition of writing this word. And this this. this practice, this awareness is actually, it has an implication. And the implication is this, that if God is my true father, then that means something about me too. What does it mean? It means that I'm a son. It means that I'm a true son. And if God is your true father, it means that you're a true daughter or you're a true son as well. And this is just one uh, uncomplicated way that I preach the good news of my salvation and the good news of my identity in Christ, that I have a father. It's one of the ways that, uncomplicated, that I just preach it to my own soul. And it's the, it's the same for you. If you struggle to see God as your father, if you struggle to see him as kind, if you struggle to see him as good, if you struggle to see him as generous, if you struggle to see him as merciful, if you struggle to see him as for you, begin, I just suggest, exhort, even uh, strongly encourage you to begin your prayers addressing him with the words that are true of him that you struggle to believe about him. Because what he will do is he'll take those prayers and he'll confirm in your soul his worth as you pray these things back to him, and he'll confirm to your soul your worth to him, and he'll confirm his identity, his characteristics, his attributes, and he will also confirm your identity as a true son or a true daughter. And as I'm writing these prayers, often after the word father comes some sort of a recognition of God's worth or his character. Oftentimes in these prayers, I'll just write, I love you. Uh, I'll just, you'll find him, it, this phrase, this offering back to him, just kind of littered in these prayers. And I'll, I'll write things like, thank you for loving me, or thank you for mercy, or thank you. It's not like, it's not rocket science. I'm not even being eloquent. I'm just saying thank you for the way that you have been so kind to me. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for my salvation. Thank you for the spirit. Thank you for my friends. Thank you for my family. And the more that I write and the more that I pray these words, the more that these words just lodge in my own soul. It's a way that we can preach good news to our own souls. No matter what you need, no matter what it is that you hope for, begin by loving God. When you pray, begin by 
loving him. Just use what you've got. He's not asking for more than that. Just use what you've got with him. Here's the second thing that we have to learn from Daniel's praying in chapter 9. It's actually a question. Are you aware of your need for mercy? Are you aware of your need for mercy? And if so, if you're aware of your need for mercy, how aware are you? You might even just like to give yourself some sort of a tangible like scale of 1 to 10. How aware am I of my need for mercy? I nearly missed a connecting flight a few weeks ago. Have you ever missed a flight? Who's missed a flight? How stressful is missing a flight? It's awful. Somebody said awful. That's a really good word for it. So we're, uh, it's just a quick connecting flight into Seattle, down to Portland, and we're coming in, and my flight starts to board before my flight has landed. And I'm, and I'm in the back of a plane, and it's Alaska. And if you know, you know. And like low service, cheap prices, low service. So, uh, so I am, uh, I'm in the back of this plane, and we touch down, and I immediately, uh, like, do the, uh, um, what are they called? The people who work the planes? What are, blanking out. Huh? Yeah, flight, thank you. How hard was that? Flight attendant. Just, my mind was so blank just now. Flight attendant. I ring the little, uh, the, the, hit the button for the flight attendant, and she comes up. Plane's still like in motion on the runway, and she's like, hey, what do you need? And I said, I've, like, my flight is starting to board. Is there any way you can make a quick announcement and like help me get up to the front of the plane? And she's like, actually, we can't. This is Alaska. And, uh, and, and so I, I'm like, oh, dude. She goes, what you're going to have to do, I'd never check my bags. I don't like to check my bags. So you're going to have to get your bags in the overhead bin. You have to like bum rush the front of the plane as soon as the, the seatbelt light goes off. And I don't want to be that guy. Nobody likes that guy on the plane, right? But so I just decided, you know what? All right, I'm going to be that guy. So I get out of my seat, grab the bag, and I cruise up and I get halfway up the plane before, you know, everybody starts standing up. And it wasn't helpful that there were two people in front of me who did not speak English. And that's like where I stopped. And they were like, I don't, I don't know what you're saying. I'm like, I got a connecting flight. And so there are people around me and they're like, they're kind of like small scale, kind of like, hey, he's got a connecting flight out of the way. And they're trying to like help me out a little bit. And these people don't understand. And then by this time, it's, you know, herd behavior and all, all of us are mooing together in the plane. And um, and these guys in the seats kind of around me, they're like, man, people are so stupid. And I'm like, I'm, yeah, I'm frustrated. But in those moments when we're tempted to call people stupid, we have to remember that we're people too. Do we not? Like, yeah, people are stupid. And I'm a people too. There's this impulsive beast-like instinct in me to separate myself from the transgressors and then to point my finger right, at them from higher ground, to accuse them with my pointed finger from higher ground. It doesn't matter if they vote different. It doesn't matter if they drive different. It doesn't matter if they look different, talk different, think different, worship different. We're kind of always sorting people out, aren't we? You're in. You're good. You're cool. You're not. You're in. You're not. I wonder if that's true for you. There's just like this instinct in me And if our impulse is superiority, we tend to look down our noses at people and we tend to say, maybe not out of our mouth, maybe not with the words in our actual brains, but kind of like this from our soul that we tend to say people are stupid. But if we say that, we incriminate ourselves because we're people too. And it seems to me that Daniel knew this. Look at verse 20. Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. He says, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin, my sin, 
and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God. Daniel is seeking God on Israel's behalf. Yes, Israel has been totally foolish for at least two centuries. But Daniel here is mediating for them as an incriminated person. The guilty one here is interceding for the guilty ones. Just before this, as as Jeremy was reading this prayer, in verses 3 through 19, if if you read through this section, Daniel had just spent a ton of verbiage issuing paragraphs of first-person plural pronouns. You haven't been in English for a while. You're like, what are first-person plural pronouns? First-person plural pronouns are we, our, us. His prayer is littered where he is putting himself in the congregation of Israel and counting himself as one of them who have sinned. Scan it for a second. If you, if you want to, if you've got the little Daniel journals, like just underline or in your own Bible, just underline all of the we's and all of the ours and all of the us's there. And as you underline them, I guarantee you'll miss some because there are so many and you'll have to go back and find the ones that you miss. Daniel is used so, he's used incredibly powerfully in this period in Israel's history. And the Bible never one time presents Daniel with any kind of shortcoming in his character or in his conduct. Not a single time does the Bible present Daniel as having any faults. None. Period. It's assumed that he's human, but we don't see any evidence of it. And yet over and over and over in his prayer, he includes himself as one of those who need Yahweh's forgiveness, who need God's mercy. And so what can Daniel be for us in this moment? He's an example of a human with true self-awareness. Daniel has self-awareness. He may be blessed, but he is not blameless by any stretch of the imagination. God blessed him in chapter 1, verse 9, but Daniel incriminates himself in chapter 9, verse 20. Daniel knows he needs the mercy of God. He knows Israel needs the mercy of God. I need God's mercy You need God's mercy. We collectively, we need the mercy of God. And this is who Daniel knows God to be. Look at verse 4. The great and awesome God who keeps covenant and has said steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. But it seems that the people of Israel, they they don't comprehend it yet. So what does Daniel do in his prayer? He raises his guilty hand. He decides that he'll be one who will contend for the people who won't see their blind spot. He'll be the one who will contend and intercede for those who won't own their sin. He doesn't separate himself and say, it's on their heads. He actually says, I'll intercede for them. I'll go for them. This is a a sign and a show of godly humility. Daniel has an accurate view of himself and he has an accurate view of his need as well. Listen to what Dale Davis writes. It'll be up on the screen. Um, Dale Davis says, Here we meet this nagging matter that so distresses Daniel. Israel has a history of rebellion and idolatry, and Israel has suffered God's judgment for it, but it has not driven them to godly grief and to genuine repentance. What concerns Daniel, it seems, is not so much the return to the land as the people who must return to the land. 
What good will it do to have people back in the land who still have no sense of their sin and no exercise in repentance? What good will it do to have them back in the land if they've never been crushed in spirit over their idolatry? And this isn't Israel alone. Humanity in general is averse to admitting our sin and our guilt. Then Davis quotes a guy named Jeff Thomas who tells of making a hospital visit to a lady who had broken her arm. And after uh, Thomas talked with her, he goes around to these people in the ward. And one elderly lady there he came across and she keeps repeating, I want to die, I want to die, I want to die. And so Thomas gave her the beginning of the good news that was wrapped in the bad news. And he says, well, if you, if you die, you, you know you're going to meet God. And if, and, and if you meet God, you might as well start talking to him now. And if you're going to meet him, this is what you must pray. This is what you need to pray. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is like baseline for entry into the kingdom. And she shoots back at him, I'm not a sinner. If you knew me, you'd know that I wasn't a sinner. And Davis writes, somebody like that can't even begin to scratch at the screen door of the kingdom of God. You're not even on the porch. They're not even on the front porch. But if we let Daniel teach us, we will know better. In fact, one of the primary marks of a Christian is that he or she continually mourns over his or her sins. What distinguishes us from the world is not that we are less wicked. You hear that? We're not less wicked. But by the grace of God, we have learned to see our wickedness for what it is and that we confess our sins. Where the confession of sin dies out, the church is no longer church. Where the confession of our faults before the Lord dies out, I'm good, it's all good, everything's up and to the right. I don't need to own that stuff, I'm forgiven. No, no, no. Where the church ceases to confess, she ceases to be the church. The, the people of God are, are still in, a, in an epic struggle with sin. We're full of it. If you're honest with your life, I'm honest with my life. And the Savior of the church is full of mercy. Our sins, they are many, we sang. His mercy is more. And so what does Daniel do in this moment in chapter 9? He calls on Yahweh to come through on these promises that God has made. Look at verse 19. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Hear, please. Forgive, please. Pay attention and act. Don't delay for your sake because it's your city and your people who are called by your name. We are representing you. Help because we are off. We are astray. So when we do sing, our sins there are many as mercy is more, we're echoing the heartbeat of Daniel's prayer. We're not just singing some words on a screen, you guys, ladies, men. We're not just singing words on a screen. We're actually praying. We're confessing in those moments if we'll be willing to go there. But I think the question that really shows our understanding of mercy is, do you display mercy? I think we know that we begin to understand mercy when mercy begins to leak out of our lives to the people around us who don't necessarily deserve it, but we don't either. And so we begin to give it away. The evidence of God's mercy in your life is not how much theology you know. 
The evidence of God's mercy in your life is not what family you come from, whose parents you have, like who are your parents, not how well your kids behave, not how good your job is, not how long you've been sober, not how long you've been a Christian, not not, uh, what political party, partisan political party you belong to. If you do not, if I do not display mercy to the people around me, I do not understand the mercy of God. Daniel doesn't deserve God's mercy. Nebuchadnezzar in the early pages of Daniel did not deserve God's mercy. Israel does not deserve God's mercy. Judah does not deserve God's mercy. I don't deserve God's mercy. You don't deserve God's mercy. We do not deserve God's mercy. Daniel knows that God's mercy is not earned. But Daniel does know God's character. And so look at verses 7 through 9. He says, to you, O Lord, belong righteousness, but to us belongs open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all of Israel, those who are near, those who are far away. So everybody who belongs to the people of Israel in all the lands which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you, to us, O Lord, belong open shame. That belongs to our kings, that is our leaders, to our princes, to our fathers, those who have come before us, because we have sinned against you. Daniel's using the we here, the plural pronoun. We have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Daniel knows that he deserves justice. That's actually what you and I deserve. We deserve justice. But he puts... Daniel puts his need, he puts his hope in God's character, in his steadfast love, in his has said. He puts his trust in God's promises to redeem Israel. And so God, Daniel calls out to God and seeks mercy, and his call to God comes through genuine repentance. The psalmist, who's actually David in Psalm 51, 17, he would write, the sacrifice that is pleasing to God is a contrite spirit, a broken spirit, You will not despise a broken and a humbled heart, God. This is true of God's character. If you doubt God's character, if you doubt God's willingness to extend to you the mercy that you need, this is what is true from one of the worst sinners in all of the scriptures. No doubt has done worse than you have. David, with confidence in Psalm 51 The sacrifice that pleases God is a broken heart. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. That is to say, God will not turn you away. Here's a third thing for us to learn. What repentance looks like. We'll stay on this trajectory until we're done. Here are some marks of true repentance from Daniel's example here. Number one, Daniel is willing to see and own his and Israel's sin. He's willing to own his sin. You cannot repent of what you will not see. We cannot repent of what we cannot see. We cannot repent of what we refuse to talk about either. I'm good. I don't need to talk about it. Just shove it down. We cannot actually repent of those things. We are not repenting if we're pushing all of that down. Verse 5 We've sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly and rebelled. We've turned aside from your commandments and from your rules. Daniel is willing to see his own sin and the sin of his people. 
Daniel is also specific about his sin. He's specific about the sins of Israel. Daniel does not only deal with the big picture. Yes, we've sinned, but his repentance gets real nitty and gritty before the Lord. It gets specific before God. He doesn't brush it off with kind of these vague generalities. I know I hurt you. I'm sorry. A key to heartfelt restorative apologies are specificity. If you want to be restored in heart to the Lord, you want to be restored to the people around you, get specific. We don't just say, sorry, please forgive me. We name what it is that we're sorry for. We name the things that we've done with color and texture and contour. We get specific about the damage that we've done. Look at verses 6 through 8. We have not, the people of Israel have not listened to your servants, the prophets. All Israel deserves open shame because of the treachery we've committed against you and our sin. Verse 9, we've rebelled. Verse 10, we've not obeyed, though we had clear instruction. He's saying we had no excuse. It wasn't just the sin of ignorance. We had clear instruction. Verse 11, all Israel has transgressed the law, has turned aside, has refused to obey you. Verses 14 through 16, we've not obeyed, we have sinned, we've done wickedly, our forefathers have too. The people who came before us have too. So Daniel, he's willing to see it, he gets specific about it, but he's also sorrowful for it, for his sin. This is to say that true, genuine repentance means that our sin troubles us. We allow ourselves to be troubled by our sin. I wonder if you create space to allow yourself to think about it or if the thought is just so treacherous to you that you just push it away instantly and you don't allow yourself to come to grips with what it is that you or I have done. Our sin should trouble us deeply. And in uh, verses 7 through 8, two times Daniel says, to, to us belong open, open shame. And he's saying, we've acted wickedly. We've turned aside. An old-time kind of fire and brimstone preacher named J.C. Ryle, he says this, The heart of a repentant person is touched with deep remorse because of their past transgressions. They are cut to the heart to think that they have lived so madly and so wickedly. They mourn over time wasted, over talents misspent, over God dishonored, over their own soul being injured. The remembrance of these things is grievous to them. The burden of these things is sometimes almost intolerable. So we're willing to see it. We're willing to get specific about it. We allow ourselves to feel it, to feel the weight and the cost of our sin. Good Friday, is that for the people of God in the calendar year? Will we come and this gathering, will, it will feel heavy and it will feel weighty and it's not a good time, but the cross was not a good time. The cross brought good news but it was certainly not a good time for Jesus. But because of the cross, we can trust God's promises for us, that one has stood in our place who forgives us of our sin and of our iniquity. And we see that Daniel here, the promises that have been given to him through the prophet Jeremiah and through the prophets who come before and through the law of Moses, Daniel trusts God's promises. Look at verse 17. Now therefore, O O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary or temple back in Jerusalem. It's desolate. 
It's been destroyed. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city Jerusalem that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness. That's not why we come to you, but because of your great mercy. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, please pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. We read in verses, starting in verse 20 and specifically in verses 22 and 23, this clear proof that Daniel's prayer has been heard and his prayer has been honored. And we ask, like, is there, is there more to this story? Is there more to this, this prayer of confession and repentance from Daniel here? Yes, there is. A, a key way that, that you and I can love God key way that you and I can love God, practice love toward God, is to remember his promises and to talk to him about them. A key way that we can exercise love toward God is to remember his promises and rehearse them with him, rehearse them before him. When we pray out of our open Bibles, we cannot help but pray God's promises. One of the, the most powerful tools that you can use to revolutionize your prayer life is to pray out of this. To let the text and the texture and the contour and the emotion and the truth on the page direct and give shape to your, to your prayers. To pray according to God's will is to first pray according to his promises and his word is filled to the brim. Every word a promise from God. This is prayer that will always be answered. Daniel is not only praying from Jeremiah's scrolls, but in chapter 9. So he's, he's reading Jeremiah chapter 9. Or I'm sorry, Jeremiah chapters 25 and 29. And we read about that in Daniel chapter 9. But he, he also mentions in chapter 9 that curses have come upon Israel according to what has been written in the law of Moses. You'll see it twice in chapter 9. He's talking about the law of Moses. What's the law of Moses? It's the first five books of your Old Testament. It's the Torah. It's the center point. It's like the Gospels of our New Testament. The Torah is to the Old Testament. This means that Daniel knows the Torah. He's been a, script, he's been a student of his Bible. He is a Bible guy. He's praying from the law of Moses, and he's also praying from the prophets, Jeremiah. But Daniel also knows something called the writings, which then complete the whole of the Old Testament. It's the, the historical literature in our Old Testaments, the poetry, the Psalms. They're called the writings, the prophets, the law, and the writings. That's the summary of your Old Testament. There's the sentence in Daniel's prayer in 9.5, it's almost, it almost verbatim matches what King Solomon prayed when he dedicated the first temple in Jerusalem as God's presence came to dwell with the people of Israel. It'll be up on the screen, 1 Kings 8, 4, uh, 8 46 through 52, and this is where we'll, we'll land. So if you're having a hard time, tune in. Verse 46, if, if they, so Solomon is dedicating the temple. This is a prayer of dedication the spirit and presence of God has just filled the temple and actually moved the priests out because they were like moved out of the temple by this presence of God. And Solomon is praying before the entire congregation of Israel who were gathered there. This has been a dream to build a temple. They've just been 
using the tabernacle throughout their wilderness journey and he's like God's living in a tent and they have wanted to like establish his presence among the people with permanency and finally the day has arrived and he's praying and it's a huge moment for the people of Israel and there's this portion of his prayer where he says if they if they Israel Solomon says if if they if the people who come after me sin against you for there is no one who does not sin and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. He's writing this in about 950 BC, 400 years before Daniel. Yet if they turn their heart in the land, to, if, if, they, if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and they repent and they plead with you in the land of their captors saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and, and wickedly. This is almost verbatim, Daniel 9, chapter, five, or chapter 9, verse 5. He goes on and he says, If they repent, Solomon does, with all their heart, with all their soul, in the land of their enemies, who carried them captive, and if they pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, if you recall from Daniel chapter 6, Daniel would three times a day, he'd go up to this upper room, he'd open the windows, and he would pray toward Jerusalem. Then Solomon wrote, 400 years before all of that, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you, and all their transgressions that they have committed against you, and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive that they might have compassion on them, for they're your people and your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open, Lord, to the plea of your servant Solomon and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you. We talked about this the last few weeks. What would happen as Babylon fell is that the Persians would come in and the Persians would take over all of the captives and all of the lands that belonged to Babylon and this king, Cyrus, would end up giving these Israeli captives, these Hebrews, he'd give them permission to go back to Jerusalem. He'd not only give them permission and notes of safe passage that if anybody who harmed them uh, would have to face justice from the greatest kingdom on earth, he not only did all of that for them, but he bankrolled all of it. He paid for it. He funded the rebuilding of Jerusalem. He funded the rebuilding of the temple, And so we see that Daniel here is praying these promises 400 years later. And after the time of Daniel, God will deliver on these promises. And Daniel is committed to praying these promises of God. His entire life, Daniel raised his guilty hand. The guilty one interceding for the guilty ones. He's consistently praying on behalf of his people. And in this New Testament era, the new age, this new covenant era that we live in, Jesus raised his perfect hand for us. Not a guilty one interceding for the guilty ones, but actually the innocent one interceding for the guilty ones, offering his perfect record that could cover our guilt. The, the innocent interceding for the guilty and offering eternal, hear that word, eternal mercy. Jesus comes to his people, the church, saying, put your needs and put your hope in me and I will hear 
from heaven. I will deliver you. You will be mine. I will never turn you away or put you to shame. He promises his people that he will transform us. And he promises us that he will also send us out into a guilty world to tell the good news that there is a God who offers steadfast love and mercy to all who call on him. And so we are the people of God because of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, would you, would you do the work that only you can do? Would you use crooked words to make straight lines to each of our hearts? Today, this morning, this afternoon, would you make us a people of your word? Would you create in us a people who are hungry to, to pray from open Bibles, to, to learn to use the scriptures as a tool for praying and for rehearsing your promises? Father, I thank you for your son. I thank you for the work of atonement that Jesus has done for us, one sacrifice for all time that intercedes for the guilty. Anyone who calls on the name of Jesus Christ will be saved and will not be put to shame. And it doesn't just end there, but as people come to know you, as I have come to know you and others come to know you, Father and Lord Jesus, you give us your spirit who is with us here today, convicting us and teaching us and embedding truth and confirmation and affirmation deep within our souls, bringing us to confession of our sin and reminding us that our future is incredibly bright because of your work on our behalf. We don't deserve it, but we get your mercy. So embed this truth. Lodge it, please, Father, in our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.